0: Hello, Copy Conversations listener. Today we have another episode of well, Copy Conversations, and we have Nadia Wan on the show. Welcome to the show. To
1: the show.
2: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: All right. So, Nadia Wan, you are the executive director and group CEO of TMC Life Sciences Berhad. Maybe for our audiences who do not know what you do, you can just give a short introduction.
2: Okay. So um, I actually have two CEO positions. So I'm the group CEO for TMC Life Sciences, and I'm also the CEO for Thompson Hospital, Kota Damansara, which is um, the biggest subsidiary under TMC Life Sciences. So TMC Life Sciences is a public listed company. Um, we're in the business of healthcare and we own hospitals, um, IVF clinics, retail pharmacy and TCM as well. So our vision at TMC Life is to build an integrated health platform because we believe that in order to be sustainable, we need to look at health in a holistic, integrated uh, manner. So what do I do Um, on the corporate side? Obviously, we have to uh, always look at um, the synergies within the businesses, finding new areas to venture into new locations, um, as well as, I think, trying to transform the organization. We all know that yesterday, the um, Malaysian, or the day before, the Malaysian Code of Corporate Governance was launched. um, And in it, there was a new emphasis on sustainability. So I think that this is really important as we see businesses trying to cope with um, global risks, like climate change, pandemics. How do we actually build an organization that is resilient enough to weather all those challenges? And of course, running a hospital day to day during COVID is also a challenge. Mm -hmm, Um, So we are doing our part in managing COVID patients, and we will also be um, one of the vaccination centers for the National Immunization Mm -hmm. Program. Uh, So I think during this pandemic, it really um, focused on public-private partnership between the private sector Mm -hmm. and the government in dealing with a pandemic, because I think everyone realizes that um, to keep everyone safe, we all have to pitch in.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, maybe let's uh, that, that, that's the good uh, overview. Maybe let's let's rewind a little bit and let's focus on yourself before we go a bit deeper on your work mm-hmm. at TMC uh, Life Sciences and also Thompson Hospitals. Um, Tell us about yourself, like where you grew up and you know where you went to school, sort of a, <laughs> a flashback, yeah. of a, a story about Nadia One yeah. kind of thing,
1: you know? Yeah. How is Nadia
2: One created? Yeah. So I'm a PJ girl. I, was, <laughs> I grew up in Kalana Jaya. Um, and I attended okay. girls schools. So I went to uh, Sunta Primary School and Sriaman Secondary Girls School. Um uh, and I was, yeah, I was on my way to do a degree in. University of Malaya and, and uh, until I got a scholarship actually from JPA to further my studies in the US. Uh, I applied mm-hmm. to the US because I thought it would be a better chance because, because this was in 2001 after mm-hmm. September 11. And I thought nobody would apply to go, so I should apply. And true enough, I did get a scholarship, so I think that helped. Um, so I, I went to Harvard for my undergraduate. I did um, biochemistry because at the time, um, Tun Abdullah Badawi was the Prime Minister, and there was this whole BioNexus, BioValley thing, and they sponsored a lot of the students to do biotechnology. Um, but when I came back, the Prime Minister had changed, so there was no more um, emphasis on this project. So I ended up working with Boston Consulting Group as a strategy consultant, Thank and you. I worked there for two years before I left to do a Master's in Public Health in the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine under MAXIS postgraduate scholarship. Um, mm-hmm. and when I came back, I actually thought I wanted to work in the foundation. So I applied to work at the Jeffrey chair foundation, but instead yeah. they put me in Sunway group. Um, mm-hmm. but I asked to be transferred to the healthcare business. And when I started working in the hospital, I knew that this is what I wanted to do.
1: Mm-hmm. How, how did you know that you, you want to be in healthcare or do you find yourself exploring things a little bit and then settling down back to, um, healthcare?
2: So, I always knew that I love biology. So, that's why I did biochemistry um, mm-hmm. in, in undergrad. But I at, at Harvard, I actually worked for four years in a virology lab at Boston Children's oh. Hospital while studying. Um, and in fact, my supervisor now is head of vaccine development at Pfizer.
1: Wow. <laughs> anyway, wow. so... <laughs> Are you guys still in touch?
2: Um, no, not really. But he did write my letter of recommendation for me to get the Maxis um, scholarship. So it's really important to keep a good relationship with
0: (laughs) your professors.
1: Because
2: Maxis didn't really want to give me a scholarship at the time. Anyway, um, yeah, so I always loved uh, science. um, But after working in the lab, I didn't really see myself as being a researcher. So when I came back, I actually worked at BCG, something that was completely different. um, That was business and and corporate strategy. But what happened Mm -hmm. was that even while I was working at BCG, I ended up working on a lot of life science projects as well. So you get to see like the just business just so happens side. or? Um, yeah, because I, I don't think they have many people with biochemistry degrees. Like a lot of people who apply to consulting do like accounting or law or business. So at the time when I joined, there were very few people with a science background. So naturally, I got put on the more science-y projects. Um, but from there, I got to see like more on the business side of health and science. Um, and I think that after two years, I sort of decided that that's really where I wanted to go. So instead of doing an MBA, I did a master's in public health.
0: I see. I mean, what was it that, I mean, the usual path for people who take or who are interested in sort of the healthcare, life sciences field, you know, they typically go straight to medicine, possibly. Um, yeah. And related, related fields, I would assume. But in your case, sort of biochemistry and you worked in a virology lab and then you sort of went to BCG and then you tried all the different things. So in that part where you were just wanted to dig in a bit and when you were doing sort of work at the virology lab, like why was it that you chose the path of not um, pursuing that deeper research sort of side as opposed to now where it's more on the slightly more business side?
2: Well, I guess because I'm more of a people person, and I think in academia sometimes it can get really lonely. So if you're working in a lab or you're working as a postdoc, you're—I mean, you do work as part of a team, but you're not really—it's not really people-centric per se. Um, mm-hmm. And I realized that I think that I—I I, I liked working with people, I like you know, influencing things together with people. Um, so it's a lot more direct um, for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Nadia, can you? Um try to educate me a little bit on the business side of of healthcare industry, because coming from a non-healthcare industry, when you mentioned healthcare, all I have in my mind was hospital, doctors, patients. Uh, So maybe for someone who who might be interested in exploring the business side of of the healthcare industry, what are the things that might not be that visible um, to the public's eye?
2: Oh yeah, healthcare is so fascinating once you get to know it. Basically, I think that, first of all, in the health ecosystem, there are many, many different players, right? So just a straightforward Mm -hmm. example. um, In healthcare, the customer receiving the service is often not the person making the payment. So you have Mm -hmm. at least three parties in a transaction, which is either the insurance company or a third-party agent that is processing uh, the claims. So in in that sense, like financing or even um, just the economics of it, There are a lot of different players um, that are involved and it actually shapes how uh, people access services and what kind of services are offered to them so for example Mm -hmm. like for um, uh, health insurance actually dictates a lot about how people consume health services so that's just one example and then secondly I think I'm not sure how many people realize but hospitals and clinics like there's a lot of um, Mechanical and electrical engineering that Mm -hmm. goes into these facilities. It's basically like running a factory 24 7 with very high tech stuff like medical gases. Um, You have radioactive material, you have a lot of like dangerous chemicals, explosives, all sorts of things. And actually, um, engineering is a really big part of it and understanding. So, to make sure that there is no risk, like, um, you know, at one point when we didn't have water, um, that was, that mm-hmm. was an issue. Um, so there are actually all these things that, that we need to also um, take into account, plan for and actually uh, manage efficiently because there is no um, tolerance for downtime. Uh, and then you look at um, just the complexity of healthcare, right? So um, mm-hmm. one different patient could be treated for many different things at one at one go. So you have a team of people who are managing this patient. So communication is really important. And um, just the the kind of things that are involved. So the inventories, the drugs, the consumables that we have in hospitals, we have like hundreds and thousands of them Um, because you can have sutures, but we can have like a hundred different kinds of sutures of different sizes of different material. And it all Mm -hmm. needs to be managed properly because um, otherwise you would have inefficiencies that would drive the cost up. So there's so many moving pieces uh, in healthcare um, that I think it's really fascinating to try and keep all the balls in the air at the same time.
1: I think uh, for me, my realization that that healthcare uh, is a big industry was when I was studying in the US. So I went skiing and then I fell, and then I I had a cut um, on my knee which needs to be uh, jahid lah. and then because they had to call the ambulance and because I had no insurance because you know try to be cheap. <laughs> and it, it is the worst mistake ever to be made in the US. So I think like, like 10 teachers cost, cost me around uh, 3000 USD, I think. Yep. And that got me thinking like, oh my, I'm taking so many things for granted with our healthcare system in Malaysia. Um, so my, my question is, right, um, do healthcare in countries, do they interact or do they operate based in their own um, country's um, silo?
2: yeah healthcare is actually like super localized because of the it's a very highly regulated industry Um, so for example in Malaysia doctors fees are regulated by an act of parliament so doctors have a maximum fee schedule that you can't really charge more um, than that Um, hospital fees um, have much fewer guidelines because I think there's um, uh, I guess not much differentiation there but I think through uh, negotiation with insurance companies that's how the cost has been managed so far because most of the uh, big insurance companies will have contracts with hospitals which include negotiation on discounts and things like that so uh, yeah so it's it's kind of um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know when, when we talk about insurance for example what happens in America mm-hmm. is that um, if you're part of an insurance plan, then the cost is low um if you're not part of insurance plan or these what they call out of pocket expenses suddenly it skyrockets to yeah. a very high um
1: super high yeah, yeah
2: super high um and so what we don't want is a, a situation where the insurance is asking for more discounts the hospitals raises the the prices and then it just goes up and up but relatively it's the same so both parties are happy but those patients who are not in the insurance scheme will actually suffer because the rate rate for them Mm -hmm. is super high. Um, So I think that what's really important is looking at the sustainability and healthcare financing is going to be a big issue for countries and with uh, things like the COVID pandemic access to healthcare and availability of health services is actually an issue of national security. So you'll see um, last year during the pandemic, countries banning exports of drugs, of uh, Mm -hmm. personal protective equipment, it becomes a geopolitical national security issue. And increasingly we see, it used to be things like energy, but now health is also becoming a subject of debate at those forums as well.
0: So it's a good segue. I, I wanted to know as well, like some of the challenges um, that you've faced running sort of, um, you know, a healthcare, a hospital, um, given you said that there's also geopolitics and there's also the operations where you said there's so many moving parts. So maybe give us a brief, you know, maybe as you're, you are a CEO and also maybe even different roles within your organization that um, you know, what kind of things that do they do as well?
2: Well, I think we can safely say that for the health part, actually, it remains the same for everyone, right? So whether in government mm-hmm. hospital or a private hospital, um, the way you treat the disease shouldn't really uh, make any difference. Change.
0: yeah. Um,
2: so what, what makes a difference between different facilities are those like, non-clinically related um, services. And, and for me, what, what I'm uh, really passionate about is that I find in healthcare that there are a lot of silos. The systems are siloed, the people are siloed. Um, and so what we're trying to do, and we say we want to build an integrated platform, is that we have to have an underlying backbone which has to be obviously technology driven in order for us to function um, seamlessly for information uh, to flow and for us to be able to optimize our um, operations and also to understand our customer better. So one of the big projects that we're working on now is migrating to a integrated hospital information system that is you know, linked to the electronic medical records. It's linked to the Um, enterprise resource planning software. It's linked to the financial software. Um, It's really painful to migrate. um, A lot of people will Mm -hmm. tell you, but I think that... um, Well, because when you're trying to integrate something that previously was all separate, right? You have to change the processes. And with that, it comes with changing mindsets as well. So it's really hard to paint a picture to a person who's never experienced that um, it's a little bit like how, um, let's say, if you if you didn't own uh, an Apple product and you looked from the outside and you and you think it's like so difficult to get in because you know there's the App Store, there's iCloud, there's um, you know iTunes and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just makes it look really restrictive, right? But once you're in that ecosystem, you realize that things are just flowing without you having to do. Uh, much at all and it's almost like unthinking but that process of migrating into the system Mm -hmm. can be Mm -hmm. quite traumatic for people so that's something that we have to really manage but I believe that if we don't do this now um, and then we're not going to be able to be agile enough to respond to the challenges that are going to come.
0: Do you think that it's because to me I've read a little bit on healthcare tech and sort of healthcare innovation do you think it's a big um, challenge changing that mindset and how do you see sort of trying to change that mindset especially um, because my my parents a lot are doctors uh, both of them and they had clinics Um, and also their their siblings also open another clinic elsewhere uh, yeah 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 that's right so I've spoken to them a few times and my and I realized that they some of them, you know, like my, I think my auntie was, was just saying, hey, like, you know, how can you work from home? Uh, you know, because she, she's not a doctor, but she's an accountant, but in a clinic. So she's like, hey, how do you work from home? Like, I have to sign things. Even then, she still has sheets and sheets and sheets of paper to actually, you know, like how we use Excel for like our accounts. So they still use paper. Right. So I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, this is like, this is like you know, 21st century. But, you know, I, I don't know what their challenges are. So maybe you can shed some light. Is it is it the, the industry itself or, um, uh, you know, what what can we do or what can you do, I guess, because you're in it um, to change that?
2: Yeah, I think that was a really big rapid change that we needed to do because traditionally in healthcare, like nobody thinks about working from home when you're in healthcare, right? Definitely yeah, for the frontliners, you yeah, yeah, they have to be in there. So everyone's just orientated towards working from home. So when that happened, we rapidly, like other companies, had to switch to using Microsoft Teams, um, you know, having shared folders on the cloud, working out um, how we would be able to run things remotely. And by and large, I think um, we sort of uh, figured out a way to do it. I think the other main thing was also telehealth, um, which the technology isn't new, but I think the acceptance during the lockdown period increased, obviously, because people just couldn't leave their houses. But um, mm-hmm. it's a trend that I think will stay. But when movement restrictions were lifted, people still prefer to come back to the um hospital. But the other Mm -hmm. key thing why I think telehealth didn't really take off in Malaysia compared to other countries is because of the insurance reimbursement. Like by and large, the insurance companies are still not covering for teleconsultations, um, which means that people still have to walk into the hospital and see a doctor so that they can get that covered. So, so again, we can see the interplay between the financing, mm, yeah. um, introduction of a new service, the take up rate of those services and the impact that it has on the patients and the ecosystem.
1: Um, a quick question on um, the um, the behavior that is influenced by the financial side of, of, of healthcare, right? Do you think that the uh, incentives for have for the healthcare industry and insurance are they usually aligned or are they usually competing?
2: Well, I'm hopefully seeing some convergence, mm. and I think this is because the insurance took the first step to really implement all these like um, technology and AI and uh, analytics in order for them to understand the customers better, and so now many of them are introducing like preventive health platforms like AIA Vitality. Mm -hmm. And so they Mm -hmm. see the value of actually incentivizing people to get preventive health because it saves a lot of expense at the end. So the insurance have actually started to really understand their customer. And where I think healthcare providers need to improve on is doing similar things because at the present moment, the information that we have on patients is actually quite um, just limited to what we see in the medical records. And really, we need to have a complete view of the person, just like how banks um, have a complete view of their customer to really understand so that you can innovate and provide services of value to the patient.
0: Yeah, and it'd be cool, sorry. Well, one thing, it'd be cool in the future if, if you know, once we start doing um, sort of genome sequencing and all the hospitals sort of has your, your data and they can even, you know, help you make sense of everything and even try to predict when you could have a disease and try to have preventative measures before it even happens with all the data. Of course, kept securely, we could potentially save a lot of problems in in Malaysia, whatever diseases that we're facing right now. So I I see that to be a very cool thing.
1: Yep. Um, So it's not every day that we have a CEO from the healthcare industry joins us. So I'd like to shift a little bit to talk about COVID uh, per se. Um, so from your point of view, um, in this current pandemic, um, does it show, uh, let me rephrase that, do you see any strength of our healthcare industry in the way that it deals things? And also, can you also share a little bit about things that the healthcare industry could also improve in the future as well?
2: So, I think the one good thing was obviously the public-private partnership that uh, very quickly came together. So, when COVID first um, started to reach our shores in December of 2019, um, you know, the government very quickly had a lot of briefings with us. There was a lot of guidelines that were issued um, and information was given on a timely manner, at least on the clinical side um, of things. But I think where there could be some improvement is, I think, because the Ministry of Health is run very differently from the private sector. And so perhaps oftentimes they don't understand where the private hospitals are coming from. And so there is a a unit actually um, within the Ministry of Health, which we call CCAPS or Jawangan Kawalan Amalan Perubatan Swasta, that usually deals as the main uh, person regulating uh, private hospitals, but it was a very small unit relative to the size of Ministry of Health. And when COVID came and this unit was supposed to liaise and coordinate all the private sector players in Malaysia, very quickly you realise that it's way beyond their scope. And therefore, this private public sector partnership and discussion needs to be ongoing at all levels in the ministry and not just one department. So I think that as um, the, you know one year has passed, we can see that there's a lot more uh, communication integration now. So for example the vaccination efforts, they have started to recruit um, you know private GPS and private hospitals to administer the vaccines. Um, through Protect Health, which is an agency of the Ministry of Health and Mm -hmm. negotiated a sum for reimbursement. So all of these are steps in the right direction. So if we can do that for COVID vaccination services, you can definitely extend this to any other health services. Um, And I think that realistically where the healthcare sector is going is that people um, probably will have to take more accountability for their health. Right. So what happens now is that it's okay, I don't need to take my medi- my diabetic medication, but if I need surgery, I can go to a government hospital and it'll be cheap. Um, and so that's not really um, aligned with the concept of like accountability and risk pooling, which would help in the sustainability of financing. Right. So as healthcare gets more and more expensive, if people don't start becoming more accountable for their health, and um you know that the government dollars are being spent in a way that is effectively increasing um, sort of uh, quality of life for people mm-hmm. um, then it's it's a runaway train that's going to crash at some point when the money runs out which is definitely something that we don't want to happen but definitely we see in this pandemic that public health was led by the government when we talk about contact tracing when we talk about um, public health interventions like quarantine. The government has to lead these initiatives, but the provision of healthcare services should definitely be a public-private sector initiative. And we should use this opportunity to build those platforms and frameworks and governance structure to allow us to continue to do this even in a post-COVID world.
0: How did you have to shift? Uh, I mean, when when it hit, right? So, I mean, every business, not just healthcare, sort of got hit and basically got slapped in the face and everyone's just like, oh my God, okay, we got to do something about it, right? So how did you guys, well, you and your organization sort of um, had to basically change yourself? I mean, you talked about Microsoft Teams, but of of course, on other aspects um, of the business and people as well.
2: Well, I think that um, the primary, initially the primary, concerned because we didn't really know too much about the virus was how to keep our employees and patients safe Um, and so there was a lot of um, trial and error about what are the things that we need to do Um, it's not just about PPE but what are the engineering things um, that we need to do you know to increase Mm -hmm. ventilation air circulation filtration Um, so there was a lot of these um, initial um, sort of like rectifications that needed to be made new Um, SOPs that had to be drafted. And I think because of COVID was an unknown virus, uh, information kept changing. So it went from, you know, people were worried about surfaces to now we know that it's spread basically through aerosols in the air. And Mm so decision-making needed to be fast. So we had to establish a task force That would overrule all the general usual decision making platforms in order to make a decision, um, you know, when it was related to COVID so that we would have a, a quick and rapid decision. So the difference was in decision making, in communication, in the way we had to change our building and change the way we worked. Um, and now it's, it's it's common. I mean, in the beginning, when we said like, well, we have to test every single patient that gets admitted, there was a lot yeah. of uproar, the insurance didn't want to cover. Um, but now it's common, like people know that in order for them to enter the hospital and be admitted, they need to do a swab test. Um, and so I think this is part of the cultural change that happens um, where we are constantly looking at what are the things that we need to do and Uh, you know, it's not just going to end here. There's also the post-COVID syndrome or long COVID where people Mm -hmm. still have symptoms, you know, three, six, 12 months after supposedly testing negative for COVID. And the Mm -hmm. um, symptoms can be um, extreme fatigue, like they can't even walk up a flight of stairs. It could be um, neurological Sometimes they just have this thing called brain fog where brain just doesn't seem to be working properly. Or they can have like other like autonomous uh, um, uh, diseases like diarrhea or palpitations or uh, dizziness. So we're still trying to understand COVID. And so that means that every time there's new information, we need to be agile enough to make uh, changes. We need to communicate that well throughout the organization because on average, mm-hmm. a hospital would have like, you know, 600 to 800 staff um, working. So that's a lot of people to make sure that they all understand what they need to do and why. Um, and the continuous uh, training uh, as well. And also educating our patients, um, the reason why we're doing what we're doing.
1: Um, zooming out on a macro level, right? Um, uh, so there's a lot of... Um... Uh, cases where rich countries are stockpiling vaccines where it has become uh, like a geopolitical issue now. Um, do you think that that has changed healthcare industry overnight? Uh, do you think that uh, how you see that the healthcare in- industry evolve or has to evolve to protect nation's interests?
2: Yeah I definitely see that a lot of countries are ramping up their own domestic capacity um, in order to ensure that they wouldn't be, Uh, put in a weaker position the next time something like this happens. Um, So vaccine production, PPE production, um, have become something that a lot of governments around the world are actually investing in to make sure that these countries or continents, in the case of Africa, have their own capacity um, to do with this. But the reality is that at the present moment, um, the capitalism is still reigning and um, you know, the countries with the most money will obviously um, have the, you know, heads up. And a lot of countries have banded together to try and apply for a TRIPS waiver for vaccine production, but so far has not Mm -hmm. really gone anywhere. Um, The US has decided, because they have vaccinated more than 50% of their population, decided Mm -hmm. to release stocks of AstraZeneca vaccines to Mexico. Uh, So, You know, you're depending on the largest of these countries to sort of donate um, to those who won't be able to afford it. But I think this is a really dangerous trend. And, um, you know, everyone at the global platform needs to have this conversation because let's say something happening in India right now may not directly affect us now, but by letting the virus run rampant through a population as big as India, there's a higher chance of a mutation developing that no vaccine we have is able to prevent right now, which Mm -hmm. means that once again, the whole world is at risk. So when it comes to health, it doesn't make sense to think of it as um, an individual interest. It's just like Mm -hmm. climate change, right? It doesn't make sense to say like, well, okay, China's, polluting more, U.S. isn't, and we can just leave it at that. Whatever one country does will affect another country. And so the time for global solidarity has to really, um, you know, the time is now for us to have these conversations before it's too late.
0: Where do you see healthcare going in the future? I mean, that's a very broad question, but maybe in Malaysia, let's say, and maybe if you get to implement every single point in your, um, what you want to do within, you know, Thomson Hospital and PMC Life Sciences, where do you see the industry um, going towards?
2: So I think the two biggest challenges that our industry is um, facing right now is definitely number one, healthcare financing because the government will not be able to sustain current uh, rates of financing for people. And so how do you uh, introduce a sustainable model for healthcare financing? Secondly, is on the constraints on manpower. So Malaysian nurses are globally uh, sought after. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, really? Singapore, Saudi. Um, so... so we very quickly lose our nurses to other countries who are paying three or four times more, even before the currency exchange. And so, um, and also doctors where um, specialist doctors, not, not so much the um, GP doctors, but specialist training actually requires um, a lot of uh, teaching hospitals. And so like, mm-hmm. if we don't have um You know, a bigger pipeline of specialist doctors as health becomes more specialized that will become an issue so so these are the the, the challenges that we're facing, and I think that the few things that definitely we need to address would be changes in the regulation. Mm -hmm. Um, to to keep up because healthcare is highly regulated, but they need to think about, are they regulating for the outcome or are they regulating the process? And if you're regulating Mm -hmm. the process, will your regulation be able to change fast enough to adapt to how the environment is changing? Um, And then also we have to look at new economic models um, and definitely insurance is, is something, but whether it is a subsidized national health insurance scheme, how that insurance scheme will look like, who will administer it, how do we make sure that we take care of everyone, um, and in the case of COVID, you can see, even if they're non-Malaysian or they're, you know, foreigners without proper documentation, you still have to take care of their health because in an infectious disease, the virus treats everybody the same. So, so these are some of the key challenges that, that we're facing. And um, I think healthcare is just, in Malaysia in particular, will need to drastically change in order to cope with these challenges.
1: Great. Thank you so much Nadia. So we have one last question that we actually ask all of our guests. So say that you are not doing what you are doing now. In an alternate world, who would Nadia be? What would you do? I'd
2: probably be a teacher. So, actually, you
1: know what, that's, that's one of the most
0: common answers that we got.
2: <laughs> so, I actually, after I graduated, I um, spent some time in a uh, Liberian refugee camp in Ghana teaching science wow. to refugee children, and that was actually quite fun because I think it's really cool to see that spark of understanding in, in someone's face when they kind of understand what you're trying to communicate.
0: Okay. But well, you could still be a teacher one day, you know. Maybe a lecturer in uh, I don't know, UM. Maybe <laughs> when you're
2: well, everybody has to teach. I think even like as a CEO, the whole thing is about really um, when you're trying to communicate your vision, you're trying to paint them an abstract picture which you, you want them to see and understand so that they can work with you on it. So I think, it is somewhat like teaching. Okay,
0: cool. Thank you so much, Nadia. I think that was amazing. I think. I have to marinate some of the things you talked about. It's quite a <laughs> quite a mind heavy topic, uh, but appreciate your time and that was quite good. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks yeah.